0: Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27. This is what Paul says, and it's a doozy. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, and don't give the devil an opportunity. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, As a gathered church today, we just want to pray corporately for this very thing, that we would not be giving an opportunity to the enemy, rather that we as a church would be giving opportunity to the Holy Spirit to free us, to renew us, to change us and to transform us. I pray that as we open up the scriptures today, that very thing would happen and the joy of the Lord would be our strength today. Many of us, Lord, come into this building at this time of year with maybe some baggage, some drama, some some difficulties in life, Lord, and I pray that you would cause us to see through the difficulties. Your promise is not that you will always take us out of the fire, but you will always take us through the fire by the power of your Holy Spirit. So I pray that today, even as we're speaking about emotion, that somehow You, by the power of the gospel, would cause our eyes to open and to be fixated on the glorious, resurrected Jesus Christ. I want to make your praise glorious today, God, for your name is glorious. We pray these things together in the name of Jesus. Amen. A few weeks ago, I went to uh, visit some family uh, up north in California to celebrate Thanksgiving, and as I was speaking to some family members, they were sharing with me about this um, old tradition that everyone in here is aware of called Black Friday at the time when we were celebrating Thanksgiving, and how in this, our particular town, there would be people who would set up shop, they would set up tents the night before Black Friday to get ready for just the deal of the century. And that was typical like, you know, for most of, most of these stores, but there were a few places strewn about at like, some of the more popular stores where people, just diehard shopaholics, would be camped out not just the day before Black Friday, but the day before the day before Black Friday. Some of them would be camped out for multiple days at a time just with tents and chairs and little uh, fold-up chairs and their drinks and food just waiting day in and day out for... I'd, Whatever, I don't know, the half-off price on some LCD TV screen or something. They just wanted a deal. And there's nothing, there's nothing per se wrong with shopping, but I've found, at least in this town, I don't know if it's the same anywhere else, i found that in this town, the longer that you wait for something, the more that you desire something, the more tempers start to flare when you don't get what you want. And this is the iron And you could, st- you could Google search temper, just Google temper flaring Black Friday, and you'll get a litany of news articles about just people losing their cool, losing their temper, just they didn't get what they want, or they didn't get in the door on time, stampedes, riots, people getting hurt. And it's almost a silly sense of irony, is it not? To kick in the new year uh, to kick in the, the the Christmas season, we are going to lose our tempers on each other for some reason it seems to be and it 's also ironic that as we go into seasons like thanksgiving, season of generosity or uh, Christmas or even New Year's, these holidays that speak to us about joy and generosity and self-denial and sacrifice, that we would come along such uh, emotions as losing our temper and being angry. And perhaps for some of us in this room, it's very real. It's not as silly as shopping. But perhaps it's just the reality and the truth that you're going to be with family members, some of whom you don't get along with. Perhaps it's in this season that you recall to mind something that happened to you in the past that really hurts, and Christmas, December, brings that that, that dark truth out. Whatever it is, it seems, and it's almost... With a sense of irony that for many of us we go into the month of December not with the joy and not with the celebration and the rejoicing that we would like to have, but with anger, with bitter feelings, with resentment even. When Paul opens up Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26 and 27, he begins to speak to us in light of the emotion of anger and emotions in general. And it's not even how you would think he starts he doesn't just open up saying, never get angry about anything, just always be happy, pretend like nothing bad ever happens, just be smiling. He doesn't even say that, as you might, as you might suspect that he would. Rather, he actually says, be angry. Just in your, angry, in your anger, do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. In other words, Paul is differentiating between a type of anger, and we could speak of it more broadly, a type of emotion that can be and can be filtered through righteousness. There is a righteous type of anger. There is a right way to get angry. If you were to look through all of the New Testament, particularly what Paul says, there are at least two ways to approach anger in the right way. One is there is a specific direction to your anger. And it's always directed towards one thing and one thing only, sin and evil. In other words, for Paul, the righteous anger that is required of us has to do with sin. Never a person, never a a relationship, never even ourselves. Righteous indignation always has as its object evil and sin. The psalmist would say in Psalm 119 verse 53, Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. In other words, it's because of what is going on. It's because of the, the brokenness of the world that we live in, that we're coming across a season that speaks about the greatest gift humanity has ever known, and yet people do not know it. People are broken. Families are distraught. Things are not the way that they should be. People are being wronged. That is what seizes us with anger. That is a right anger. But then some of us would come along, and we totally get that, right? We hate sin. We hate sin. We hate unfairness. We hate injustice. And in our zeal for righteousness, we steamroll people who do the wrong thing. But Paul would actually go a step farther and he would say, not only is righteous anger directed towards sin, but righteous anger is self-controlled. There is a limitation to it. There is a, a self-controlled aspect to righteous anger. He would say in, uh, I think it's Galatians chapter 5, verse twenty. That an act of the flesh is an outburst of anger. So, in other words, it's when you lose control of anger that you start to veer off from the right way to get angry. There's a wrong way to get angry. And Paul speaks of it uh, by negation. It's when we we sin in our anger. Be angry and do not sin. Sin is really speaking of the condition that taints the heart of every man and woman. It's not... Just behaviors, like when I run a stoplight or when I uh, say something that I shouldn't say, those are sins, but they stem from a condition that humanity has, the condition or the sickness of sins uh, of sin, and out of that condition flow sins. Those are the behaviors. Those are the outbursts of anger. Those are the things that we act out uh, wrongfully towards one another and towards ourselves sin really in its most basic literal form means to miss the mark i remember playing darts one day with a a group of friends and we didn't have like the real dart board with the pointy the pointy metal needles me and pointy objects don't go good together so we played with those blunt plastic parts you know where you have to get it in between like a bunch of little i don't even know what they're called little stubs (laughs) but there's in some of these plastic dart boards, they don't have that, that wire border, and so when you hit something, you don't know if you're on one side of the line or the other. And there was this one occasion where I threw the dart and we're just neck and neck, and I get right on the line of the bull'seye. And my friend's like, "Nope, that's not it. You're right on the line. By default, you miss the mark. And I am fighting. I am fighting with this guy. Like, no, I, at least like, give me some half credit or something. I'm right on the mark of the bullseye. Whoever does that? His answer, nope, you missed the mark. It's either a bullseye or it's not. This is exactly what God views sin. We sometimes like to fudge the line or, you know what, I, I, I messed up here, but I did good over there. Or I, I kind of did what God told me to do, but, but you know, I'm, I'm right on the line. Don't I get some credit for that? But for God's sin is missing the mark. And if you miss the mark, you miss it entirely. So when Paul says, in your anger, do not sin, he's saying if you veer from that righteous indignation that God speaks of, you've missed the mark. Paul, I believe, in this verse, gives us two ways in which we miss the mark when, when the emotion of anger comes upon us. One is when you no longer can control anger, but anger Begins to control you. Now, when anger controls, we sometimes think exaggeratedly like an outburst of anger or flying into a rage, but anger really is beginning to control you when you begin to experience anger with wrong motives. You don't have to fly off the handle, you can simply be angry for the wrong reasons. Anger is beginning to control you. So, for example, uh, there might be something that happens that's legitimately wrong, but perhaps your motive is pride. My pride just took a, uh, just took a, a, a gut punch, and so now I'm, I'm angry over it. Or perhaps you see someone that has something that you don't have, and so the motive is envy, and so you're angry. Or per, uh, perhaps you just want to do something out of spite. You're angry. Perhaps something happened, and it was truly wrong, but you took it personally. Angry. Anger from the wrong motives. This is the beginning of when anger begins to control a person. There's a story in the Old Testament with King David, who arguably is the most popular, most uh, famous, most faithful uh, king of Israel in the Old Testament and throughout history. Who in a part of his life suffers uh, a kick to his pride at the hands of his own son Absalom. And King David, who it was at one point sung about, just his glories and his praises, they used to sing about him, uh, Saul has slain his thousands, but King David is ten thousands, who at a, a young age slayed the, the Goliath, uh, Goliath, the champion of the Philistines, and brought unity to the entire nation of Israel, one of the greatest kings in all of Israel, all of a sudden suffers a coup at the hands of his own little boy, who chases him out of Israel. Israel. And seeks to assassinate his own father. And so King David is on the run. He's suffering shame. He's suffering ridicule. He's lost his own throne at the hands of his little boy. And now he is with his armies in the caves in hiding in utter shame. And he writes a couple Psalms. He writes Psalm 3. He writes Psalm 4 from this context. And he writes from the context of just being in shame and being ridiculed and being in this place of turmoil. And at one point in Psalm chapter 4, in the early stages of Psalm chapter 4, his eyes begin to be fixated on a greater champion in his life. And he looks to the Lord God Almighty as his vindicator. He says in Psalm 4, verse 4, know, and he's saying this to his entire army, know that the Lord has set apart the faithful for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to Him. And then he says this, So be angry and do not sin. On your bed, reflect in your heart and be still. You know what David is saying? Even though everything right now is falling apart in my life, I have lost complete control over the situations in my life. This I know. My God will vindicate me. So I choose to fixate my eyes on the Lord. And He steers the entire army behind him in that and that is his way of saying don't take don't take matters into your own hands your god is sovereign the lord will vindicate you and it's this very thing that paul takes paul is quoting psalm 4 chapter 4 when he speaks to a group of christians in the church of ephesus and to reality And he borrows not just from David's words, but from his situation, saying to you and I, the Lord will take care of your situation. In other words, for the Christian to let anger control you is more than just letting your emotions get out of control. To let anger control you actually reveals a lack of trust in a sovereign God. It is you saying, I do not trust God with the situation I am in, so I am going to lose it. Sinful anger is a human trying to act in place of God because they no longer trust and believe that God will show up mighty on their behalf. It's simple and pure idolatry. That's why there's a biblical tension all throughout the scriptures regarding anger. The Apostle James would say in James chapter 1, 19 and 20, My dearly beloved brothers, understand this. Everyone must be quick to hear slow to speak, and slow to anger. Why? Because man's anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Notice that even though Paul says, hey, there's a right way to be angry, the tension in the Bible is you don't want to go there all the time. That's not the place that you want to camp out and live there's a right way to do it, but if you camp out at the at the footstool of anger, it will begin to fester. In other words, there are right times to be angry over situations, over sin, but do your best to resolve things quickly. Otherwise, anger will start to overstay its welcome. Paul says in the next part of the verse, "Don't let the sun go down on your anger." Now, he's not speaking in a, a woodenly literal fashion. He's not saying, okay, Santa Barbara, Carpinteria Ventura, you have about until 5 o'clock, sometimes 5.10 to get all your anger out. What you really want to do is wait until the spring when we have to change the time because then you get an extra hour to be mad at whoever you want to be. But once that sun goes down, you know, you better, better fix your business. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you don't want to let anger overstay your welcome. You don't want to, you don't want to go too long because if, you, if you're not careful, even if you're angry over the right things, injustice, unfairness, something, someone sinned against me, someone sinned against a loved one, if you begin to concentrate on that and let it just let it camp out, that anger will begin to fester in your soul. What started out as righteous will turn into unforgiveness or possibly resentment. If you look throughout the New Testament, especially in Paul's writings, actually in a few verses in verse 31, chapter 4, I believe in Galatians, anger is almost never pictured by itself. It always brings friends. Anger is, if you want to call it this, the gateway drug to everything else. It seems harmless, it seems like it's okay, but it opens the door to a variety of anger's little buddies. For example, bitterness. If you hang on to anger too long, it'll begin to fester and turn into bitterness. Here's what bitterness is. Bitterness is like putting on instant replay what somebody has done to you. You ever get to that point? I've done this more often than I would like. Someone hurts you, it irks you, and then you go home and you just begin to replay. Just instant replay what that person has done to you. I can't believe they did this. I can't believe they said they were going to do this thing, but they're not doing it. You just begin to replay what that person has done wrong to you. You go to bed. You you fall asleep at night just thinking about how that person has wronged you. And it turns into this root of bitterness. But it doesn't stay bitter. It turns into a grudge. If bitterness is replaying what someone else did to you, a grudge is replaying what you are going to do to that person. It could be utterly extreme, or it could just be what you're going to say to them, how you're not going to give them something that you were going to give them, how you're going to just tell them what for. A grudge shows up as early as Genesis chapter 27, verse 41 with Esau. It says, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. In other words, Esau started off a little irked. He had a motivation of envy. I can't believe that my brother gave us a son. But as he began to let it fester, it turned into a grudge until the point where he says, Esau determined in his heart the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. He was no longer replaying what Jacob did. He was replaying what he was about to do. That extreme situation might not be everyone in this room's situation. But perhaps for some of you, you are at a place where you are harboring a grudge. No longer just thinking about what that person or what the situation did to you or what God did to you. You are now replaying in your mind what you are going to do. The thing about sin is we can never sin inside of a vacuum. Especially in a church community. You sin, it will begin to affect everyone in your life. A grudge will inevitably turn into strife. And strife is no longer hostility or animosity between two individuals. It's that individual creating a faction. And then people siding with that person and siding uh, with the opposite person. And all of a sudden you have open conflict between people groups, between races, between families, between uh, factions. There's divisions, there's fights, and there's splits. It seems so far-fetched, but that is the raw power of a sinful emotion that is left undealt with by the power of the gospel. That is the power, or the lack of power, of a Christian who forgets the fact that he has been redeemed from his old way. That is the the raw situation and the raw uh, uh, reality of a person that forgets what they have been saved from and goes back to their old life. The irony is, with something as easy to fall into as, as sinful anger, we sometimes think that it's doing us good. You ever, when you get into that place where you're just angry at someone, it's, it, it gives you a strange sense of satisfaction. Like, it's not really doing anything to that person, but at least you feel a sense of satisfaction. Ah, that's why you think about it. That's why you think about what you're gonna say. That's what you think about what you're gonna do. That's why you uh, mull over it for minutes, even hours, maybe days at a time. It gives you a strange Sense of satisfaction. The bummer is, it gives you a sense of destruction, a destructive sense of satisfaction. The author Frederick Buchner in his book Wishful Thinking describes bitterness almost as a, a, a feast that we gorge ourselves on. He says of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds. To smack your lips over grievances long past. To roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come. To savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you were given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. See, once you have opened yourself up to anger's control over your life, once you give up control over your life to the emotions to control you, you open yourself up to far more. I'd like to call this the Trojan horse effect. Ever hear the story of the Trojan horse and the battle of Troy? I believe it was uh, Virgil who tells the story about a siege that the Greeks had laid uh, hold of with the, the, the walls and the city of Troy in which they were battling for days on end to no avail. Troy was holding them back by their mighty walls and their fortresses. They were laying siege, but they weren't getting any far, uh, any farther. And at one point, the Greeks decided to bail. They say, you know what, this is, we're done with this. They pull back their troops, they retreat, and they leave a trophy at the, da- at the gates of Troy in order to say to them, almost a, a, a symbol of a white flag. It was a giant statue of a horse. The armies of Greece disappear, and at the... At the Falling of the sun, the men of Troy open the gates and they see this giant statue of a horse and they bring it into their city gates and they begin to celebrate saying, we have held back, we have held back Greece. We have held back the armies of of, of the Greek warriors and they've even given us a trophy to congratulate how good we were. We are awesome. For the rest of the night, they go on partying and celebrating and making merry until they fall asleep. Halfway through the night, as the warriors of Troy are sleeping, the wooden statue begins to move. It was hollow. And inside this statue of a horse was an entire battalion of Greek warriors who opened a hatch at the bottom of the horse and began to creep out in the middle of the night. They made their ways to the gates. They opened the gates where an entire Greek army was waiting to rush in, and that they did, ransacking and pillaging And this is what we know is the fall of Troy. Proverbs 25 verse 28 says, that a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Satan, for the Christian, one of his greatest schemes, because he cannot take the soul of a Christian, we believe that, We believe that nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, not even demons or angels. We believe, as John would say, that you are so situated, believer, in the hands of Jesus Christ, and Jesus' hands are situated in the hands of the Father, that it just cannot be undone. Jude and the apostles would say, you have been established, you have been strengthened, you have been kept. The psalmist would say that your foot cannot slip by grace it is God who is at work in you to work and to will for his good pleasure we believe that not even your salvation your salvation is done so what is the strategy of Satan in the life of a believer it is to let you do the initial work to open a door of a habitual sin that he might come in and finish the job he might not get your soul but he can make your life a living hell Paul would say, don't give the devil an opportunity. Some of your translations might say, don't give the devil a foothold. Paul's original word would say, don't give the devil a tapas. Tapas, where we get the word topography. Literally, Paul is saying, a spatial place. Do not give to the devil a spatial piece of real estate for him to work in your life. God owns your soul. But in this life, it seems that the Christian can give as much real estate to the devil as he or she wants. In Luke chapter 11 verse 24, this word tapas shows up when Jesus casts out demons out of a man and says, When an unclean spirit comes out of a man, it roams through waterless places, through waterless tapas, Looking for rest and not finding rest, it then says, I'll go back to my house where I came from. This is what every Christian in this building needs to know right now. The devil is a squatter. Demons are squatters. And God rescues the soul of men and women. But Satan will not give up without a fight. And he might not get your soul in this life, but he will try to ruin your life with anything that you allow him. And the way that a Christian allows Satan to have that type of authority in their lives is by habitual sin. Now notice I'm not saying sins. I'm not saying you... Wake up in the morning, you mess up, and then you repent, and then all of a sudden everything changes. I am saying habitual sin. That's what Paul has in mind. Habitual sin is to say, I know what I am doing is wrong, but I don't care. I don't care what God calls me to. I don't care about the new life that God calls me to. I am going to progress in this habitual sin because I like it. You know what you're doing? You are allowing Satan to. Enter in with a Trojan horse that he might do anything that he wants as much as you will allow him in this life. And he is a squatter. He will not leave unless, what? You submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. Some of you got, yeah. Praise God. Praise God that we have that authority. Bummer. For some of us, and this is the truth for some of you, some of you got a Trojan horse, man. Some of you are claiming it, you're naming it, you're reading it, you're praying it. You're showing up on Sundays. You love Jesus, but you're wondering why you're living in such defeat, why Satan is just kicking you around. I just want to ask, and I don't know, this is for you to examine between you and the Lord, is there anything in your life that you are giving for Satan to use against you? Do you know that you have the authority to walk away from the old life? Indeed, God calls you to walk away. That was our old life. The crazy thing about it is that for some of us, and there are perhaps people in the building who are not saved, and for you, God declares that you, even though you might be angry at situations, you are under the anger of God. We don't often like to think of God as angry. Scripture declares that God is angry with sin more than we would ever hope to be. He describes it as His wrath. In Nahum 1, verse 6, it says, Who can withstand His indignation? Who can endure His burning anger? His wrath is poured out like a fire. The Bible declares that for everyone who is in sin, everyone who is not saved, not born again, they are children of wrath. And for them, they are storing up wrath for the day of judgment when God will pour out his anger and wrath upon them in his holiness. He's not some cute Santa Claus grandpa that's just going to see you at the end of judgment day at the beam of seat and just, just wipe everything under the carpet. He is a holy God. And isn't that what we expect of a holy God? That there is something out there, someone out there who is better than us, that won't sweep evil under the carpet, that will wipe away every tear, wipe away every evil, take care of sin, and deal with the injustices and the evil that we so are indignant about. Unfortunately, we are the ones who are sin. We are the ones that he has to deal with. We just read months ago in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 and 5, that we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires. Speaking about the Christian. Carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in our trespasses. Christian, you are saved by grace. And in a sweeping display of his sovereign power and in his love, the gospel declares that by grace, God's wrath was poured out on Jesus Christ so that God's love could be poured out on sinners. Ephesians chapter 2 Verse 14 would say that instead of wrath, for everyone that chooses Christ and follows after Christ, instead of wrath, we get peace instead. We get wellness and wholeness. We get put together. We get joy. For he himself is our peace who made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Meaning that Christ himself brings to us peace and wholeness and reconciliation and wellness And renewal and restoration. Not just for our own lives, but in such a way that the gospel affects our own relationships. The wall of hostility, broken marriages, broken relationships, broken families begin to be made whole. Old wounds begin to be healed by the power of the gospel of Christ and the peace that he spreads. How do you experience this peace in your life today? Some of you know this verse. Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9, he said, Christians, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. In other words, instead of wrapping your entire life and heart around how someone has wronged you or how something didn't go the way that you wanted, fixate your affections and your life and your disposition around what God has done. He's saying, think and dwell on and meditate that which is true, honorable, just, and pure. You know what? Paul isn't saying, he's not speaking in an abstract fashion. He's not saying, you know what? Just, just think of happy thoughts. Whatever happens to be true, whatever is nice and lovely, you know, whatever just does it for you, rainbows and unicorns, you know, whatever just makes you put a smile on your face, think happy, positive thoughts. He's not saying that at all. The vocabulary Paul uses in this passage all has to do with things about Christ, It has to do with Christ's life, His person, His death, His resurrection, the full counsel of God. You know what Paul is saying? He's saying instead of thinking about that, fixate your mind on doctrine. Fixate your mind on what God has done. Oh, you know it, Christian. You've been been reading this all your life. Think about it again. Think about it again until that which is true and honorable becomes that which is lovely to you. Dwell on it. Meditate on it. Immerse yourself in it. Push out the lies of the enemy with the truth of Jesus Christ until it begins to renew your mind. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be renewed by the transformation of your mind. Think about the things of Jesus Christ. Paul says, if you were not to dwell on those things that irk you, even though it's okay to be angry, there's things to be angry about, there's a right way to be angry, but at some point, you got to fix your mind on Jesus Christ. You will experience peace that surpasses your situation and your understanding like never before. Funny thing about anger, at least personally. I've noticed in my own life, I don't know how it is for you, but I've noticed that when I get angry, when I lose it, when it moves from being righteous anger to sinful anger, I notice it's almost always because I have lost control of some situation. I have lost sovereignty, so to speak, over a situation. I'm out of control of a relationship. I'm out of control of something financial. I'm out of control of a job. I'm out of control of a a relational thing. And so I get angry as if my anger would fix the situation at hand. Perhaps some of you are feeling out of control of a particular situation this morning. I want to invite you, based on the Word of God, as we worship God in song today, to begin to think upon things that are true this season. And what better thing to think about in the month of December than Christmas? I don't mean trees and lights and tinsel, and presents, and rainbows, and unicorns, I mean Jesus Christ, who became flesh, and dwelt among us, and who got into our mess, and who got into your drama, and who sympathizes with you, and who knows what you are going through, and knows what your struggle is, a God who is so holy that he looks on sin and he can't, he can't even look at it because he cannot approve and yet he dwells in the place of sinners. Some of you right now are projecting your anger onto God. You think that God is a grouch. God came into your mess. God lowered himself to your level and he came. He condescended. He came into your messy situation because he loves you to death. I want you this morning, by the power of the Holy Spirit, as we sing songs that will remind us of those truths, to begin to think about the truth, to think about his honor, to think about his justice, to think about his purity, and to think about them until for you they become lovely. And when they become lovely, you will begin to see and to experience that peace, that same peace that would cause David to say in Psalm 4, the Lord will hear when I call to him. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Prince of Peace today. Thank you that in this season we come to you, God, and we say with all honesty that you, the Prince of Peace, are the only, the only salvation that we have. And God, for some of us, we need salvation. For some of us, we don't even know you. I pray that you would save us today. Some of us, we've known you for years, but at this point of the year, we are so overwhelmed with bitterness and resentment and old wounds and discouragement and disappointment and addictions and all sorts of things that tangle us up. God, you came to destroy the works of the devil. For my brothers and sisters, some of whom are being tripped up by the works of the devil, I pray that you would show yourself mighty on their behalf today that you would break chains, that you would be our all-sufficiency, and that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would manhandle our affections, arrest our hearts, point our eyes away from the things around us towards a God who saves sinners. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.